And here we go. You are recording the call. So, uh, Panthers, 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 Panthers. We don't have to. Maybe you shouldn't have had coffee. Um, no, I think that was the exact right call. This is a very special episode of Through the Window, News of the Century. So, let me ask you this, as, as we tangent slightly on to something else. Have you had a chance to watch Ali yet? I haven't. I have listened to Alex and Sharon discuss it, mm-hmm. and I'm in this, like, real paradoxical situation where it's I'm at home all day, and yet mm-hmm. I have very little time to actually sit down and check out a full film in one sitting because Mm of just a number of things that have come up and uh, because of Greg's fantastic planning, dear listeners, (laughs) you won't see the seams. It's been a while since it's just been just Greg and me talking. It's very nice. I missed it. Anyway, to answer your question, no, I haven't, uh, but I have heard a lot of what Ali means to Alex and It, it made a lot of Panther Soul make sense. It really did. Well, I, I, having said that, you, I still highly recommend that you actually sit down and watch it because over the course of reading Panther Soul, which I had read prior to seeing Ali at that point, I didn't understand that there was a connection um, and only learned about it in the run-up to Alex doing the Ali show. So I watched it beforehand, and then I listened to his podcast on the subject. The significance here is that Prior to seeing Ali, I was looking at Colo Nash and seeing a bunch of different potential influences there um, that, you know, felt like some of those could still be valid sources in terms of elements that were brought in in order to more flesh out his character and his arc and his personality and everything like that. But I did not appreciate just how important... Muhammad Ali was to the character of Kolo Nash until seeing that movie and understanding just what kind of personality Muhammad Ali was. Prior mm-hmm. to this, he was just a historical figure. I'd never seen him box. I'd never seen him do any of his on-stage stuff with, uh, what's his name, the um, the sports reporter that he had the rivalry slash friendship with. That would be Howard Cosell, played in the movie by problematic actor John Voight. I had no idea that he was as much of a wordsmith as he is. A lot of the the jibber-jabber, the, the pre-fight stuff that Cole would get into. Dude could dance around anyone, like, with, well, in the ring or, like, with words. It's, like, just the little I've seen and heard, mm-hmm. it's it's astonishing. Right, but that's, that's the thing. Now, now that I understand what the primary source that Alex is drawing on, I understand it's like, oh no, this this was what he was drawing on all all along. And it feels almost a little bit like I'm downplaying 
like saying it's like, oh yeah, he's a little bit of Spider Man, he's a little bit of Nathan Drake, he's a little bit of Indiana Jones. It's like, no, no, no. This this is mostly Muhammad Ali here, and that's really the way it should be, because there's a very specific mythology that's being drawn upon here, and it is very, mm. very black. Black as in yes. culturally black. You know, mm. comparing Colo to white people feels like that's almost disrespecting or something like mm-hmm. that. I guess, like, the best way I could almost sort of see it is that there are traits of Indiana Jones that, like, you see there, but, like, who he is is better to be, like, properly attributed to the men who embody that, like, mm-hmm. and that's why the the two... Uh, I'm blanking on the word, but at the uh, in the opening pages of the book, the acknowledgments, the dedications, that's it, are to... Like, the greatest. The greatest and the king, um, with that being Chadwick, Chadwick. Boseman. Yeah. Uh, you can never really sort of, like, li- uh, you can't say that, oh, it's only ever just limited to this, because, like, that's not how creativity works. But it certainly, I think, is mainly attributed to Ali but I think in the same way that like when you first are introduced to a character you have that sort of like oh they're a bit like this because it kind of helps you paint out the character's sort of frame the sort of silhouette of who they are Mm -hmm. and it for as an example James feels a lot like the Sherlock Holmes and specifically the Robert Downey Jr. uh, portrayal of Sherlock Holmes. And then the more time you spend with them, you see, okay, that's the first impression you get. And then you start to see the things that are them. And Mm -hmm. somewhere along the way, they stop being new centuries Sherlock Holmes or new centuries Muhammad Ali, and they become James. They become Kolo Nash. Yeah. And yeah, th- those differences are, are very important. The experience of Kolo is significantly different from Muhammad Ali, even though, you know, they both go through their own periods of having their lives subject to someone else in slavery or in, you know, being considered, you know, we'll give you your, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to give you your freedom only as long as you are entertaining or useful to us and all that sort of thing. And we can definitely understand that after everything that Colo had been through, that he was willing to lie to himself a little bit and believe himself free even when he wasn't. I I, I can forgive him for the mistakes that he has made because he has just been through so much shit. Mm. But on top of that, considering where he's come from, and you know, I don't, I don't feel the same way about Muhammad Ali. It would it, that might feel a little bit disrespectful as well to attribute, you, that. To, to attribute it, this to him. But when I look at Colo and the way that he puts himself out into the world and interacts with people, that cat is dead sexy. Like I, I'm, holy <sighs> shit, the charisma coming off of him. <sighs> uh, yeah. <laughs> like I was Let, more than happy to just, you know, like yeah, the Toby Toby's really vibing off of this guy. 
I'm not going to get in the way of that. But now here I am just sort of sitting on the sidelines and biting my knuckle going, ah, holy (laughs) shit. (laughs) Mm. I mean, I think that there is so much there because like what, what's really, what's really cool about Colo is that everything about him is sort of tailor made to be like, God, just, <laughs> and like his opening adventure which is a very sort of like indiana jones slash like the, the the bond style thing of uh like having a previous adventure adventure before the main adventure starts mm-hmm. which you kind of it feels contained enough that you're able to enjoy it as its own thing mm-hmm. but it's also his introduction everything about him it's like wow, this is, like, one of the most charismatic characters we've seen in New Century. Mm-hmm. And as it goes on, you see that his, like, he does have something that he needs to work on. And you even see it in there, where he is, like, you know, dancing circles around people. He's being incredibly cheeky. And you <laughs> see in his head, like, okay, actually, I think I'm I'm working a bit too hard to put this guy down when... This guy isn't really doing anything like dishonorable. Like, like I feel like I'm crushing this person's spirit for no really good reason. And he can't help himself. He still indulges in that. And mm-hmm. I think it's those little indulgences that you start to see like build up over the course of it. And you realize, yeah, like Colo, if, if there's a way for me to audibly convey bites lip intensely uh that's that's what kolo is i vaguely remember a while back that alex worried about giving voice to this character because he had to follow up what maureen did with rao in tiger's eye but honestly i don't think that that's the sticking point in my own mind in terms of what alex will have to do to bring kolonish to life because one of his most charismatic performances of New Century thus far is Robin, from Princess Thieves. There, the amount of silky cream he's able to bring to a voice that is more in line with his normal speaking pattern is... It's quite compelling, to be honest. Now, I have confidence overall in his ability to make new voices for the audio drama. He has a talent for that. It's that, in my mind, it's Robin's voice that he has to meet or exceed. His writing has set us up with an expectation that I will be fascinated to see how he lives up to it. And nevertheless, there is something that the guy needs to work on himself, and he does. And by the end of it, it, it you do see... You were talking earlier about how, like, man, we got these last couple of chapters. What the hell is there left? And... What I like about those last chapters is that it shows that as great as things seem to be for now, like our characters have come so far, they're not done. There's still mm. like work to do. Colo is going around going like, sorry, sorry. And not everyone is happy to see him. The the merchant is like, ugh. And Colo's like, yep, yep, okay. And Stardancer as much progress as they have made as much as Malg is gone the they're not suddenly going to stop they're not mm-hmm. suddenly going to be able to fully move away from everything that Malg made them to be we've already talked a lot about the villains in this book so i'm not going to go on an extended tangent here we've got to leave some work for the eventual panther soul q and a 
as well as our deep dive into every nook and cranny of the book. But what occurs to me about why Maug is as intense as a villain can be in a story, it is because Colo and Stardancer are and will be forever affected by her effect on them. The harm that Mohawk inflicted or the life that Shrike took from them, these are both traumas that will take a while to heal. But Maug's influence is more like, instead of merely being a wound that much stitched together, she reaches into your head and plays with it like putty, reforming it into a shape more pleasing and useful to her. By the end of the story, she is dead, but she will never be wholly gone. We see this in how Kahlo still calls her mother on instinct. I think that for Kola, I've gone on a tangent, but for him, he's a combination of just so much appeal, so much like raw talent, and yet there is good care made to like oh he's not a Gary so no 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 it's not that like we that's not really a valid way of uh like that's not really a valid I'm losing my words the point is that uh <laughs> come on has... give, give me something to work with here I'm gonna have to I don't want to edit this out I want to make it coherent here but you keep on trailing off or, or I mean, not finding the words look Colo is a cat that will steal your heart but he will win the fight, but he's like the one person that he's never really been able to fully like come to terms with or like has difficulty grappling with is himself. Like that mm. sounds like trite to say, but that's very much the case is that by the end of it, the greatest opponent he has to overcome is himself in the fire. It's yeah. just a con confronting of this is who you are over your many lives and that's what I, that's actually now that i think about it that's what i love about his journey because you have these moments of he marks out his life and he says so begins my fourth life so the mm -hmm. fourth of my lives so begins the fifth of my lives and the thing about that philosophy about how this is categorically the end of like part of my life is that there is a quantifiable amount of time left or representational time. And that comes to a head when he finds out that he has only so many years left to live. Mm. And for him, that is, there's this feeling of acceptance that this is the life he has led up to this point, but that there is space left by the end of the book, it's not so begins or so ends my final life. It's there are lives left. There's not an infinite number, but there is space and time for him to be. He has been so many things over his life and he can be so many more. And that's such an uplifting journey to see. Mm. And the fact that he's drop dead sexy, it just makes <laughs> it like a very appealing journey to take part in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry, Future yeah. Greg. I hope you can edit that into <laughs> somewhat coherent stuff, but uh, failing that, hum -na, hum -na, hum -na. I mean, you know, it's, 
that this this is part of the way news is supposed to work. Oh yeah, uh, is that we we deliberately came into this high energy, no plan, no structure, just Laden completely riffing off the cuff. So that means that this is going to be end up being far less sculpted along the way, and that makes it maybe a little bit more difficult for me to make it as cohesive as I normally would want to, but it's also emblematic of the emotional effect that this story has had on us. Mm. So it can be just as important to capture that as well as making our podcast as to the point and pithy as possible. So it's fine. It's fine. I've, 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 I've dealt with worse on occasion it's all it, it's it this this is just an additional part of the narrative now i think oh yeah you know what there is actually one character we haven't really talked about except in passing maximus yeah god um that hurt yeah well okay so that's not just that but um if we're going to be talking about fallen characters along the way I actually can't tell you how happy I was at the beginning of the story that Laseth and Rickish came back into the picture as part yeah. of Beatrix's crew. Yeah, that was really and cool. And then they're literally there so that Shrike has someone to kill at the midpoint of the story. I'm just like, fuck! That felt targeted. That felt yeah. like Alex knew that us two, that we would recognize those names and go, oh, cool, those guys. And then, like, I mean, I, I don't want to say that it was necessarily targeted us. I, I, it feels like it feels like that because of the work that we did talking about these tertiary characters in Tiger's Eye and the fact that we delved a little bit into who they were and hoping that we would get to see more of them. Mm. But I also think that it may well be that Alex always planned to make them a part of the story because mm -hmm. it wouldn't have had as much impact had Shrike killed two people who we had no frame of reference for. Yeah, yeah. But and... like, you, you can say all you want about being able to read panther soul by itself mm. but the fact that these were characters in tiger's eye that, that had voices that had voices that were brought back into this story and were apparently willing to forgive beatrix for what she'd done enough that they were willing to be loyal members of her crew it wouldn't have had in, in enough weight the, if the people that Shrike had killed were were nameless or, or 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 extras that we had no frame of reference for, so you know yeah. there there is there there is a point behind all of it, and I can appreciate that. Even as I yeah. wish maybe they would have had actual if they, a if bit they more time, speak, yeah, a, a bit more time, maybe mm. a little bit more to speak and everything like that. Like mm -hmm. I would have been curious to hear how it is that they came back from their experience in Leon mm. to go back to, you know, their homes, their tribes, and then somehow found Beatrix again to be recruited to be on her crew. I um, forget, were either of them the ones that uh, jumped with Hral to fight the widow beneath the waves? 
Oh, God, I don't remember now. It's been mm. so long. Because I was now intrigued, I absolutely went back to check. And Toby's instinct was right. Liseth and Rickish and Arish, the cheetah, were among those that fought the widow with Rao. But the important thing is that like, they are familiar, that there is something that is lost. And as an aside, something that occurs to me throughout all of this is that everything that Shrike takes away from us and like the characters we care about is done through very sort of fleeting moments of callousness that are just like, you know, I arbitrarily decided I'm I to kill your friends. And mm-hmm. I just decided this fight between me and Kodo was long and drawn out. And just because I'm a sore loser in a single instant, I decided to kill your father. Like Mm -hmm. it's such everything that she does has such long lasting, damaging impact, but it's done with such thoughtless, almost she actually didn't put any thought into the actions. It's just, yeah, that's, that's done. I think that makes her ultimate fate actually quite fitting because we want her to suffer but in that fight with the tiger with the cat sword uh at the end uh what's the name that Lyra comes up with it smileotron the smileotron that's because that's it's because good. it's a smileodon tiger yeah, yeah uh, actually, so <laughs> of course i was trying to remember what actual cat it was but then mm-hmm. i like remembered of course it's a saber tooth the fact that beatrix who has every reason to want uh, Shrike to suffer just kind of decides no wait we have to be fast about this and and Shrike's torn in half to shreds you say um bitten but, in half actually yeah. like not even yeah. she's she's shift you know mm. that thing where she is literally torn in half she's bitten in half by the jaws of the great uh cat mm. Jaeger. so yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, like and that's such a sort of fleeting moment of like blink and you miss it and Mm -hmm. that character who took so much from us is now dead and not just dead but like super dead Mm -hmm. and i think that that's a i'm not sure what to read from that just from a initial realization but that's certainly i think fitting and a pattern i see there i feel like this is a topic worth considering more in the future a larger discussion of when villains die in new century How are the deaths framed? Because there may be an even larger pattern to it, more than merely comparing the mirror of how Shrike killed Maximus and then Beatrix killed Shrike. Going back to the casualty of Shrike's actions that hits the most is Maximus. I mean, you say that she didn't put any thought behind it. I'm not sure that I agree with oh, that. I think that, yeah, I think no, that her true. actions... It's very deliberate. Yeah, she, she she was very surgical about it. It just mm. so happens that it wasn't... It was done with malice aforethought. She mm. knew that this would hurt them. She wanted to hurt them. Yes, yes. Because she had been humiliated in front of her people. Mm. So... You know, yeah, she would she would do what she said she would because ostensibly living up to whatever honor she had was important, but she wasn't mm. going to do it without twisting the knife mm. first because I, fuck you. Yeah, and I think it's in, important in her own mind. Yeah, yeah, I think it's important that this like 
reprehensible person who is a monster makes this show of fairness that mm. yes i did exactly what i said i would and look i'm letting you go and all of this stuff which is ostensibly to save face or just to be like oh technically i did everything right because that is how the evils of the world do things they mm -hmm say like okay well we've followed the letter of the law and it just so happens that i'm the one writing it mm. and it's yeah this sounds contrary to the emotions that you feel because you want maximus who's just this wonderfully supportive older figure to mm -hmm. essentially everyone he like all of the protagonists he comes across and i think it's actually important that he isn't there alongside them for the rest of their journeys because the, his main point is that he believes his last words to Kolo is to be that best version of himself that, mm. and it's that belief that he can get there and I think it's important that these cats find that on their own that this supportive figure isn't there to like help them with that makes the journey they go together all the more significant. Yeah. It's a little bit of um, Sullivan from Uncharted, I feel. A little bit of Alec Guinness's uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. There was... Um, the mentor you know, definitely dies a lot. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, not, not just in terms of him being the mentor figure, but in terms of the sort of personality that he was carrying around. Because he was a, he was a humorous sort. But he was also, you know, the strong influence on more than one character in the group. He mm. was Beatrix's father. He was a separate father figure to Colo, more than just a mentor. You know, he, mm. he did encapsulate that role in a way that Colo needed in particular after losing his mother, after losing... Mog, even though she was a monster, mm. he needed some kind of positive older person influence in his life to sort of set him back on his way and grow into the person that he would become. And there are also a few elements of, like, say, uh, Shepherd Book in there, maybe a little bit of Henry Jones Sr. as well, in terms of mm. the the personality and the weight of what he was trying to carry there um mm. being part of the story yeah so yeah th that's the thing is that even though he had direct connections to beatrix and colo he also had thoroughly charmed laia um mm. over the course of their short time together so mm. his his passing even hits her hard in mm. the end yeah and and, and without without his presence that's part of the reason why things start breaking up the way he they do. Because everyone together. That yeah, exactly. Everyone can agree. Yeah, we all like Maximus. And mm -hmm. yeah, it, it hurts. And yeah. that's the point, is that you spend enough time and you like him. I think that's the... That's uh, like the whole point is that, you know, if at the start of the book we were told, like, okay, you're going to meet Beatrix's father in this book. It'd be like, oh, cool. But the reason that it becomes a spit take when, like, Beatrix says, hi, Dad, 
it's because we uh, we know Maximus well enough at this point where it's like, wait, you two know each other? Wait, you guys are related? Like, there's, mm. That's really the kind of litmus test of, okay, are we invested enough in Maximus that it's going to hurt when we lose him? Mm. Well, when we find out this connection, it's a big moment. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, damn, this is going to really hurt, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm. I have a question for you. I have an answer for you. Okay. So how did you feel when you realized that the next story in the world of Rama would be this treasure hunt? Like, were you excited? Were you sort of like, ooh? I mean, the thing is, is that there was a very small gap between finding out what Panthersol was actually going to be about yeah. and reading the book itself. Uh-huh. So it's a little bit difficult for me to tap into how I actually felt about the potential story. Mm. Um, at that point, I think when we, when we had the description of what the arc of Panthersol was going to be, it was without revealing a lot of the core stuff that was going to encapsulate that story. At that point, we had like a few paragraphs, a couple paragraphs on it, that it was going to be a treasure hunt, and we had the cover. That's mm. all we had. We didn't yeah. yet know. We, we knew that the Panther and the Lynx were going to be teamed up together. We had the character of Star Dancer, who we knew was going to be them. And then we had, of course, the figure of Mog on the upper right-hand side, who I thought at the time might be some sort of mentor character. Honestly, mm-hmm. given the way that the faces are laid out in other books in the series of New Century, or even just, say, the cover of Tiger's Eye, which the the, the top two corners are reserved for Haka and the Gagaku, I should have known that the people on the face of the cover wouldn't necessarily all be components of the heroes, that there would be villainous personalities on the cover as well. Mm. But it, it that was not necessarily clear to me until actually reading the book and mm. finding out what was going on that, and that, oh, actually, Star Dancer was going to start out as an antagonist rather than as a protagonist. Mm. Um, I think I was overall intrigued by the story Mm -hmm. but because the story doesn't begin with colo because it begins with beatrix i think that the second i found that out that putting her front and center so a familiar face and seeing what she's been up to this entire time not to mention that that prologue also includes the return of Frau and Miguel to the world of Rama. That sort of got me invested right away, even more than the potential promise of what this treasure hunt was going to be involving Kolo and Laia. Uh, mm. So that I think the the way that aspect of it was laid out was exactly the way that it should have been. As opposed to, yeah, the prologue is Beatrix and then it's Hrau, two familiar faces. 
then we get the opening with Colo that is very Raiders of the Lost Ark mm-hmm. as we're introducing our primary protagonist. And mm-hmm. that is what starts framing the actual treasure hunt aspect of the story, even mm-hmm. though the hunt is not on yet, but it, it has to... Okay, now that it's hooked us with the familiar, now it has to sell us on the star of the show, so to speak. Mm. And I think I think the way that plays out works very well. It did for me, at least. Yeah. I was interested in this because it was the sort of thing that I think I felt quite surprised mm. when I found that, but I couldn't necessarily articulate why that was because I think it had to do with just the problem that I'm sure Alex was facing and trying to sort of figure out for a long while of how do you continue the story of Rama? Mm. How do you take it to new places Mm -hmm. and make it more than just where Hrau comes from, Mm -hmm. you know? And when you find out that it's this treasure hunt that comes with a lot of assumptions that sort of it's exciting because it's a very different tone of story to what tiger's eye felt like in the sense of ooh, we're going after this object and there's a lot of like genre associations you get of like indiana jones and things like that mm-hmm. you think like ooh, this is going to be fun and because this is new century there's of course a lot of heartbreak in that as well but it does have that energy to it that momentum that you think okay this is a change of gear here but i think that as i got further into the story i realized that this was the perfect place to go with it because Mm -hmm. it means widening your focus of rama because you're with a treasure hunter who engages with other cultures who unearths their histories their legends and is widely traveled and all of this stuff and it means that they're engaging with all these different languages like the 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 conventions of the genre invite like globe trotting that's the point hey yes. how do we tell a story about rama how do we kind of tell something that feels cohesive to our goal of wanting to explore more of the hidden corners of this world. Well, why don't we do one where it's literally about that, where it's like, hey, let's find a treasure that's in an, yeah, that's in a secret ancient city. What was really great to me was when you had that glossary of languages at the mm-hmm. beginning and you're starting to think about how there is this feeling of progression that you realize, oh, wow, what we saw in Tiger's Eye is the origin story for a whole new language. That, w- that yes. again, adds into that whole, like, adding significance in retrospect uh, quality of sequels where you think, like, oh, cool. Like, it really feels like the previous book had much more of a pronounced effect than we had even realized because this has spread so much further the fact that after at the end of beatrix's story you're saying like you know that was where uh rapport which i think is a great name for mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. that because it's a cat pun rapport mm-hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no i i entirely agree that this was exactly the right direction to go if you were going mm-hmm. to expand the world of Rama because mm. Tiger's Eye was very tightly encapsulated. It was primarily mm. jungle. 
then it was a little yeah. bit of the ship, and then it was a tiny piece of, of civilization when they had the court and the capture at Leon, and then mm. immediately goes back to the jungle. Here, yeah. the story, particularly in how it follows Colo's story, goes to so many different places that you can't help but feel like it is opened up more and you literally like traveling by map is like, we're going to go here now we're going to go here mm. now we're and but it's also not all linear like mm. say the mummy or raiders of the lost ark would be it's jumping around mm. a whole lot in time as well so yeah. in that way in in the in, in the loose non-linear storytelling of this it is following very much in the footsteps of tiger's eye it just so mm. happens that the process of following these people through the different places that they were, Colo in particular, although it happens with Beatrix as well, allows us to visit so many different cultures and ecosystems and places where we get to see that things didn't just stop when the focus mm. was off it in Tiger's Eye, we're seeing what happened in between those points because Brow and Miguel have spent so much time in Century now. On top of which, much of the story revealed through Colonish and Beatrix all get into many events that happened long before the events of Tiger's Eye. So in reality, Panther Soul kind of brackets Tiger's Eye on both sides. The Lions of... Leon, as well as other Western influences like the conquistadors of El Gato. Oh my fucking God. Uh, like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, that, that, uh, that whole thing is just really just sort of whets our appetite for more, even as it gives mm -hmm. us a whole lot to make the world feel as big as it actually is. I'm insatiable. I I feel this with Rama because when I finished Tiger's Eye for the first time, I was like, no, 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 I don't want to go. This is like this world is just so enthralling and like you feel alive in it. And in this, it gave us so much more. It, like, and you feel like, oh man, I've seen so much of Rama. I've seen so many people in it. And then when it ends, I just for the second time in my life, I had that feeling of. No, I did. Please, please no. Like, it, <laughs> I like I I mirror what uh, Alex confessed, which was that you get withdrawal mm. from it, and you go like, no, I. No one around me is cats. <laughs> <laughs> I want uh, to stay in Catland. It's so much better, even with mm. all of the other emotional mm. ups and downs that it put us through. Yeah. 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 As I was framing it with Alex a little bit ago, I think this was actually in a conversation on the um, New Century Forum, is that why wouldn't you want to stay in a world where it feels like you can affect actual change yes. and make it better? This is, this is a form of escapism, in a way, mm -hmm. in, as... As 2021 is proceeding and things are better than they were the year before, but there's still much, so, so much stuff that makes you want to grit your teeth and go, why, why, what mm. the fuck? Yeah, th this is... 
I, I don't blame him for feeling that way. I don't blame you no. for feeling that way. This is, I, I, I'm, I'm with you on that, I think. And also that feeling of being able to do so with other people who want that same mm-hmm. thing that you do, to be, like, to find and forge connections mm-hmm. with other people in that way. And when I was reading the climax or climaxes of this book, it really did strike me how much New Century makes a point of how there will be these fantastic artifacts of or objects of power, which a lot of certain books in the series will be like positioned around, mm-hmm. such as in this, it's uh, Cloudbreaker. Yeah. Cloudbreaker, yes. And in um, Princess Thieves, it's the, the, Ar- the Arkenblade. The Arkenblade. And you think that, okay, like this is going to be an object of power. One person gets to wield it. And in both stories, it makes a point of, well, no. Once you get it, these objects of power actually change hands quite a bit. Mm. In this, Lyre starts out with it and kicks wholesale ass and then passes it to Kolo. And then when the when the gauntlet is shown to not be all that was hidden here and the Smilotron is there, like Lyre starts out with it and then Beatrix is able to use it. It passes between them because they share this power. This and that's I think a fantastic synergy here. And I think why that image that is conveyed at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy 1 is quite mm-hmm. like yeah uh, I was absolutely applicable say. here yeah it's that feeling that you know absolute power isn't something that should be given to one person it's something that's shared that you hold it together and that like this thing that gets you through it can be taken up and applied differently by different people that's how you make progress happen it's not even necessarily about the item of power because mm. in Guardians of the Galaxy, they don't even actually use the power gem against Ronan in exactly the same way. Like he is defeated, but that moment at in the end of Guardians 1 is just about coming together to protect Quill because mm. they are they have to stand together or fall together. He has managed to help bring them together for selfish reasons, but now they have to do the right thing for heroic reasons. And it's very emotionally compelling overall. And they they need each other in order to push, not just in order to get each other's assistance, but to push themselves in the, in the right direction. Mm-hmm. They, you know, that, that there's... Some of those moments during the final coda of them embracing and being together is a representation of that they don't just need each other's physical strength, they need each other's emotional strength. They mm. are stronger they are stronger together than they are by themselves, and that they can't necessarily stand alone, especially when they're carrying the weight of not just the things that they want to do for the world, but when they have the responsibility of of Cloudbreaker and the Smilotron. Mm. 
Yeah, I'm exhausted too. <laughs> this is this is a really this is a really good book. I uh-huh. mean, I like I was just turning to the final page, and you were talking earlier about how this book has so many quotable lines and mm-hmm. things that just sort of stick with you. And I talked a lot about how I loved the final moments of Stonespring, but mm-hmm. I think this might be my favorite final line of a new century book, which is just, we have tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Like all the meaning that's associated with that. It's, <sighs> I love Stonespring. It's, I think that I'm going to be associating different new century books with like the different lessons and things I took away from it at Mm -hmm. different key moments. And you may think to yourself, like, Toby, how could you possibly have had another key moment after the last one, considering like there's not been that much time between releases? Because I talked about how Stonespring was really Mm -hmm. special for me because I had just managed a milestone that I had been working towards for Mm -hmm. a long time that had been giving me a lot of trouble and to feel that like to go on a journey of mending and healing and being better than like to have not only healed but reached a point where you're even stronger than you were before with Panther Soul the combination of reading this book about Colo and all of the other characters and hearing Alex talk about uh, the film Ali and everything about not just the film but the life of the man himself Muhammad Ali and feeling all of that fire that I think Panther Soul is that is that fire to seize things to seize your own life that way to Mm -hmm. like and not to do it for pride but out of a passion to make the best of things was exactly the sort of story and the sort of journey I wanted and needed to go on Mm -hmm. just as I was about to start an exam uh, about a week or so back and I felt like okay I need to go into this and have that determination in like people questioning me on like why are you doing what you're doing and this story kind of puts into perspective it's who I am and I'm Mm -hmm. damn good at it Mm -hmm. And that's why this story hit quite hard. And it's not all that the story accomplishes. Of course, it's not all that it accomplishes. It does so much more. And I look forward to reflecting on that in the years ahead. And when we do do our full season on this, I look forward to it immensely. Mm. I think I alluded to this earlier, but... As much as I enjoyed Stone Spring Maidens, and I did, there were individual elements that I think made Stone Spring what it was to me. And mm-hmm. I was also building a little bit, I think, off of the personal experience that you were having from your response to it. And what I'm saying is, is that like you, I don't I don't like Stone Spring Maidens less after having no. read Panther Soul, but I also think that, I mean, I don't necessarily know this because I don't, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine myself in that emotional place, but I'm not sure that I would feel 
as strongly about this book if it weren't for the emotional roller coaster that you and I went on specifically with Tiger's Eye. Yeah. We keep saying this, but Panther Soul is stronger for what it builds off of. Mm. And it's not just from a storytelling standpoint, it's from an emotional standpoint. And mm. we've already talked a lot about where Tiger's Eye left me emotionally. So when I say that Panther Soul builds off of that, I am specifically referring to the emotional component and that the culmination of all of the events of the story left me feeling more raw because of how raw I felt after unpacking Tiger's Eye. Yeah. <sighs> I, I, yeah, I don't. If I had been more prepared, I, I might have more to say, and I'm sure that when we do a thorough deconstruction of this story that I will have a lot more to say. But at mm. this point, I'm just like, yeah, so that's us. Yeah, uh, it is. That's a good two hours of content as well. Oh, yeah. So I, I feel like we we gave it mm. our best college try, yeah. trying to get all of our feelings and thoughts out there. Mm -hmm. If I was to come away from this with any, like, conclusion on like that can be applied not just to panther soul but to the trajectory of new century as a whole and i think that this is a conclusion that's going to be very useful in the time ahead because good lord uh, alex is on a hot streak at the moment mm -hmm. like and i don't mean that oh he has to keep delivering on the same level as these last two books but i just mean that in terms of output he has done remarkably well in channeling this creative energy mm -hmm. into tangible like results like this and so you know we're like experiencing new stories at a alarming rate <laughs> what i've concluded after seeing like two s tier new century stories in a row is that i'm gonna stop comparing like oh Mm -hmm. Is this better than the is? And it's not really that's not really important to me anymore because, yeah. especially because from the sounds of it, Nightfall of the Wendigo is not like being positioned to be this sort of epic or like something like what Pantsol is trying to do. It is very much more sort of specific in scale and focus. And mm -hmm. to me, it's not about how do they compare against each other. I just kind of want to see if each book can be the best version of itself. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I know that sounds trite, but it's true, is that the best New Century books are the ones that just commit so much to telling that story. And I'm excited because it, we keep building off of what comes before, but to create something new. And that's why I think our title for these is, well, is apt, because these mm -hmm. are these all feel so new. It's not just continuations of what came before. They're, I, I don't know what to expect, and we've been spending a year talking about all of this stuff, and it's wonderful. Yeah, he's leaving it all out on the field, is what is is how I would put it. He's yep. like, okay, yep, I did a good job with phase one, now I have to up my game. I have to take this places that it hasn't gone before. I have to not be afraid of making mistakes along the way. I have to figure out what story works best for what I want to be telling going forward and mm. getting the input that I need to 
make that the best story possible. Nightfall is going to be is going to take up where Uncivil Outlaw left off, which is where you and I began over a year ago now. Um, so that's wow. go- that that's going to be its own. What's the word? It's going to be its own anniversary in a way. There coming mm. back to James and Butler and Rebecca, and me wondering if some of the stuff that we talked about with Spencer and Loretta in terms of their characters whether some of that is going to come to fruition based on mm-hmm. <laughs> based on Alex looking over our shoulder and taking notes uh, from what the two of them said about those characters. But yeah, I, um, I'm, I'm glad that Alex was smart enough to not try and put nightfall in front of this because we really needed to, get all of this stuff out um, while, while Panther saw was like burning a hole through our heads there um, with, with with flaming tattoos (laughs) as if he wasn't hot enough already. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Toby, thank you. Thank you as always for bringing it. I think we both brought it today. Yeah, Uh, you really brought it. (laughs) Uh, as said, more high energy than I think I've ever been on the podcast before. Even if I, I had to, it. yeah. I, even if I had to, I, I had to take some steps in order to sort of pull, put myself in that place because I've always sort of felt like I, um, I tend to be the more even-handed moderating influence on your energy sometimes. Although I'm very even-handed. How dare you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm. You know, I'm just very much looking forward to seeing what's coming next down the pike. And um, because, you know, it's another news of the century. (laughs) Well, we're going to have another news of the century. But I suspect before we record on that, we are I I think we should do our recording on Cartographer's Handbook uh, as soon as possible. Mm. At the very least, the first episode of that, if not... um, if not both episodes, the way the way we had originally planned, mm. um, because I, I notes on that, right? You, yeah, I, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that we still have our notes around somewhere, but I'll I'll make sure to reshare it to you if we absolutely need to. As far as Nightfall is concerned, I, as usual, probably going to devour it, and you're still going to need time to go through it, regardless, because you're dealing I, with a whole lot more stuff on your plate. I, so I should be able to get through it uh, quicker than I did with the previous two, because okay. uh, I mean, a from the sounds of it, it's a shorter book. B mm-hmm. it's uh, like timings are okay right now. So even if I'm just reading 30, 50 pages a day, I should probably be like, you know, within week of release, I would predict. All right. But we'll Excellent. see. Yeah, we'll see. exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, In the meantime, dear listeners, we'll see you next time. And that's all the news that's fit to print. I like it. Yes. (laughs) It it just came to me. (laughs) If I really wanted to, I could do a Walter Cronkite impression. And that's the way it is. (laughs) News jingle. (laughs) We're done. Close the window. Yeah, we're done. We're done. And that brings us to the end of another episode. I know, unfortunately, that there may be fewer people than usual 
that listen to our episodes on Stone Sting Maidens and Panther Soul than any of our previous stuff. Because apparently many fans of New Century prefer to wait for the audio drama rather than the book itself. I guess I can understand that impulse, but there's no way that Toby and I could wait. Especially considering that the both of us reading Uncivil Outlaw back in January of 2020 is what led there to be a fan podcast at all. By now, this is likely to go up at or around the time that Maureen Foley's interview will premiere. Which means that more of you long-term fans can enjoy that with no issues. It will not have any spoilers for Panther Soul, unlike these last two episodes did. And Toby and I will finally be recording our episodes on Cartographer's Handbook in the next couple of weeks, getting back to what we do best. Also in the coming weeks will be News of the Century, Nightfall of the Wendigo. I'll tell you right now that our conversation there will likely be a much more subdued affair. The energy of all of the books that have come out in the last couple of months are very different animals altogether. In one book, there's romance and almost superhero action, and in another, there is high adventure and a breakneck treasure hunt, coupled with some boxing scenes in the middle. In comparison, Nightfall is going to have a much darker energy to it. It's a short, tightly knit story that needs the context of the previous stories to buoy it along. As much a piece on the characters we love and the dark places that they have gone to, as a story that shakes up the Etch-A-Sketch, and leaves everything up in the air as to what comes next. I am still processing it, and will likely, as always, need my partner in crime to help me make sense of it all. It's going to be a ride. To close us out, a piece that is very different from my usual. I tend to go heavy into the meaningful lyrics, of the songs that I choose to end my podcast with, picking something that fits the conversation we just had. And the lyrics are not unimportant here. But overall, it's also just a commentary on the level of energy that this story inspired in us, and a conclusion to how we feel in the wake of this epic tale. It's also a generally far more pop affair, a remix by the talented musical producer Red One. I give you a rendition of an Usher song, simply titled More. If you really want me as I dance under the spotlight, listen to the people screaming, I'm more and more, cause I create the feeling that keep them coming.